Okay, we are studying Hebrews 5, and we were on verse 6. Hebrews 5, verse 6, is about, um, again, Melchizedek, which is going to be coming back more focused in chapter 7 of Hebrews. But it says here, just as he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the context that we studied last week, we were talking about Jesus Christ, about the regular human high priest, taken from among men, has to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. And that the priesthood is not an honor that a person takes, but it's granted by God. And then he introduced uh, the idea that Christ didn't glorify himself or decide to be high priest, but he said, Thou art my son, the day I have begotten thee. So we have the eternal sonship. Um, and then the priesthood is mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4. So first Psalm 2 is quoted to prove that this high priest is the Son of God. And then Psalm 110, verse 4 is quoted to prove that he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's two, there's two, there's three probably, uh, I can't limit it because there's a bunch of reasons why it's important. But two right now that are very salient, and that is that number one, this answers a Jewish objection. How can Jesus be our high priest? He wasn't even a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. So Jesus, Jesus isn't even qualified to be the high priest. He has to be a Levite. But the answer to that is he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 7, the author of Hebrews is going to argue that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. So he's even a greater high priest because he comes after the order of Melchizedek. And the other objection that's being answered here is that how can he be both the king and the priest? Because the high priest and the king are two different people. They can't be the same person. But Melchizedek was the first person mentioned in the Bible who was both king and priest. And so Jesus being after the order of Melchizedek can be indeed both king and priest. Now we might think that this just sounds like technicalities to us, but to the Jewish people these were very serious questions. Because they were being tempted to go back, look for a different king, and go get a Levitical high priest like they had before. And therefore they needed to know that no, they have both king and priest in Jesus. So, there are two degrees decrees here. Psalm 2, 7, Thou art my son, they have begotten thee. And then um, Psalm 110, verse 4, Thou art a priest. Both spoken by the Father to the Son. Personal address to the Son himself. Um, this use of this passage, by the way, is unique to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament as far as how it's used. Okay, let's look up uh, where this is all from. Uh, Lonnie, could you look up Zechariah 6.13? And Dean, Genesis 14, 18 and 19. Zechariah. Yeah. Yeah, Zechariah. 
Yes. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit in his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between his holes. Yeah, there is another prophetic passage about a priest on the throne. That's interesting. We shouldn't. That would just seem it's kind of an interesting thing because the, the, the king is supposed to be from the tribe of Judah. The priests are from the tribe of Levi. So here's a pro- prophecy. There's two prophecies in the Old Testament then that predict a priest and a king. And Jesus fulfills that because of his being of the order of Melchizedek. And Psalm 110, which is quoted more often than any other psalm in the New Testament, to prove that Jesus is ruling on the throne. Sit thou, you know, at my right hand till I make thy enemies footstool for thy feet. It's also quoted here to prove that he's a priest. Wow. You know, I don't think anybody can think up the Bible and just sort of make it up. <laughs> You would never think of all these things. The Holy Spirit had to have done this. Who would have ever thought of all this? And then stick it all back in the Old Testament and then have it come through later. You just couldn't do it. You would never, uh, as the most brilliant author, couldn't think of all the little details that are here. Tightly woven. Tightly woven, yes. That's the way it's Dean. Uh, Genesis 14, 18 and 19. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram <coughs> of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Amen. So there's our king and priest. And you see, he brings out bread and wine. I suppose there must be a type of communion. It's a foreshadowing Christian communion. communion. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so you can be thinking about that. Well, let's go to verse 7. Hebrews 5, verse 7. It says here, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Um, probably, I, I would have to uh, believe that this is a reference to Gethsemane, for sure. I mean, God also on the, on the cross, but certainly Gethsemane. My Bible says that uh, in that he shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. So, yeah, thinking of it was possible to take his cup from me, right. he said. He offered up, see, this offering up prayer and supplication would be giving us the idea of a priestly um, function. Jesus' prayers here are considered a sacrificial offering. The word offered here in the Greek is a technical term for offering a sacrifice. So his prayers, in a sense, were a sacrifice. They were offered up to God. And... um, and it says he was heard because of his piety, or the word can be translated reverence. His offering was accepted by God. Although the answer was that he still needed to die, not my will to die. Right. What do you have, Dean? I was just saying, King James says he was heard in that fear, and this is not fear of being afraid, 
referencing the Father. Right. Yeah, it's here. This reverence towards the Father. I had a quote here from William Lane. The brilliant William Lane. Very, very, very fantastic. He says here, um, Jesus was not kept from the experience of death, but death had no lasting dominion over him. He was led out of the realm of the of death through the, the death through the resurrection. In that sense, he was heard. Um, the object of the prayers of Jesus was his glorification. John 17, his prayers were heard in the sense that he was exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. It, he says it is preferable to interpret the statement he was heard as a reference in the context that speaks of the sacrifice and to recognize the Greek phrase the one who is able to save him from death, a simple um, uh, circumlocution to God, which it is. It, it defines not the content of Jesus' prayer, but the character of God as the Lord of life who acts for the accomplishing of salvation. So the question is, how could he say he be heard when he actually did die? So rather than looking at a prayer to be saved from death, was if you look at the context of John, I think that's pretty interesting. John 17 says, glorify thyself. In other words, that Jesus' death, burial, resurrection would be uh, glorification. And that's what Jesus was praying for. Uh, yes? This really speaks against um, meditations in prayer, doesn't it? You know, the, the, the way of talking. Putting yourself in another place and, and waiting for God to speak to you—that's not what Jesus did. No, that that idea of prayer really isn't biblical at all. Yeah. Um, he, he we he offered up prayers and supplications to God, and this is not our job to give some sort of a mystical answer. It's our job to pray and put ourselves in God's hands. The answer becomes apparent. His loud cries and tears. Yeah. That's not somebody sitting and meditating and thinking about that. Emptying their mind. Yeah. Thinking of thinking about that. That's true. Is it all? Okay, um, Brian, could you do Psalm 18, 19, and 20, and Joanne, Psalm 22, 24, and uh, Troy, um, Psalm 40, 1 through 3, and. Um, Judith, Psalm 69, 13 to 16. Where did the baby go? Psalm 69, 13 to 16. Okay. I'll give that to the two of you. You can decide who reads it. That'll take you a little time for you to go on. Diane, Isaiah 49, 8. And Bert, Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 11. 3 and 11. Okay, uh, where was I, Brian? Psalm 18, 19, and 20. Oh, yeah, Psalm 20. I mean, chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. Not three old chapters. He brought me forth also into a large place. He was delivering me because he was pleased with me and delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands and his and he recompensed me. Okay. They they mocked, it's interesting because elsewhere they mocked Jesus because they said if he delights in him, let him deliver him. 
I think that was probably a reference to that song you just read. Didn't they say that on the cross? People around there? Yeah, if he delights in him, let him save him now. Yeah, we'll see if God delights in you while Jesus is being tortured. Where's God saving you? And they're probably referencing that song where David, David said, he's saving and he delighted in me. And they're using that to mock Jesus, saying, well, it's not happening for you. But as a matter of fact, he was hurt, according to this. And this, this out, the saving was the resurrection, not... You know, tightly pulled. Yeah, is that amazing? Yeah. Um, okay, and then Joanne, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four. For he is not despised nor for the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Yeah, Psalm twenty-two is very much a messianic psalm. There's so there's so much prophecy in Psalm twenty-two. Um, uh, I said Psalm 40, 1 through 3. 1 through 3? Yeah. <clears throat> I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and heard my cry. He also brought, up, brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God, many will see it in fear. And we'll trust in the Lord. Amen. Great song. Brought me out of the mire you get put my feet on the rock. That's what God does. Psalm 69, 13 to 16. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mute and do not let me sleep. O Meyer. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. Wow. You know, we learn a lot about prayer by reading the Psalms, don't we? For quite a few years, I was studying on the Psalms. I think we got through about 75 of them. Well, 75 is pretty good in about 10 years. But one thing we learned from studying the Psalms is what prayer is all about. And it would certainly be a better source for information than most of our books on prayer. You know, a secret of getting your prayer answered. Intending to Yeah, you can how the secret of getting your God to answer your prayers. And it's just silly because. It says that God is going to, if we, we learn some secret, that's very pagan, isn't it? The pagans have the idea that the gods are hiding from them, and if they learn the secret, they make the gods do what they're supposed to do. And until they become God. Yeah, but, but in the biblical idea, we know who God is, we know what his nature is, we just don't know exactly what he's going to do. Okay, or how he's going to do it. And so the biblical writers just... Petition God based on his character, saying that you are a just and holy God, and you're a merciful and compassionate God, and though I know I'm a sinner, I, I, I come to you asking for your help, and I make my supplication to you, O oh Lord, and then trust that and leave it in God's hands, and, and he answers. He doesn't take us out of the mighty dead, he does set us on the rock. And yes, as those preachers are saying, he does deliver people from drugs. 
But he does imply by the power that he, of, the, of the working of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, so, amen to that. Very good prayer. Isaiah 49.8. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and reassign its desolate inheritances. Yeah, so that's a Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 49. So the appropriate time he hears who? Messiah. And makes who? Messiah. Covenant. And there's, a, there's, there's two things there. Because it, says, it doesn't say covenant for the peoples. So there are two promises there, one of which has been fulfilled and the other ways fulfillment. The one promise is to make Jesus a covenant for the peoples, that is the Goyim, the nations. The other promise is to restore Israel. Right? To restore the desolate land. That's still a waste. You know what? I think I'll... Diane, remind me of that verse when I debate this fall. I think we're going to have a debate on this for KKMS on the issue of Israel. That would be a very good one. Whether there's, God has any future promises for Israel. Who are you debating? We don't know yet. It may not even be me, but it might be. Uh, I'm having a meeting with Jim Markell and Jay Larson at KKMS on the 7th to plan the debate. And if he wants Jan to moderate it, I don't think she's going to be neutral. But, uh, <laughs> uh, Who would be? No, no, no. <laughs> so, but anyhow, uh, we're going to see if we can't get an able and you know, uh, that would, you know, not have a rancorous debate, but a friendly one that really learn things, you know. God is, God is working big time in Israel right now. I mean, it's, it's very, very fruitful. Yeah. They're producing tons and tons of fruits and vegetables, and it never used to be there. I know. There used to be a desert. Yeah. Some of these, uh, just to show that God fulfills prophecy, uh, you read all these prophecies about the desolate lands becoming fruitful. Then you go to Israel. Um, I, I was there in '83, and it's only gotten better from what I hear because they just they're so hardworking in their agriculture. But I couldn't believe the produce. I mean, the, the best thing, one of the best things about going to Israel is the breakfast. <laughs> I mean, they know how to have breakfast. You know, instead of you know, Cheerios or Egg McMuffin or whatever, you go to you go to good thing Dick is new here. I'm just curious. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> you go to Israel and you and you get up in the morning in the hotel and you go down for the buffet and they got tables of produce, fruit, and, um, cheese, and all this produce is luscious. Oh man, that's. But it was in, the, in like the 30s or 40s. I, I can't remember the writer's name, but he he said that huh? Mark Twain. Yeah, Twain. He had he had visited there, and he said, "What a wasteland!" Yeah, it was a wasteland. It was just a wasteland. As a matter of fact, several years ago, we had a film showed up here in the sanctuary that was a 1917 silent, one of the first motion pictures made, and it was they had a very very early, you know movie camera, following General Allenby to liberate Israel. Okay? And and so, you, did anybody see that besides me? You saw it. Isn't that amazing? The you, horse, I, don't know, I don't know how they did it. 
Well, how did they give water to thousands of horses? I don't know how they did it. It was a military genius, is Alabi. But they're going into a, they're going through a desert. There's nothing but desert and rock and, and desolation everywhere all the way through Israel. That's why we wondered about the horses, how they ever get water. And they show in the video the mayor of Jerusalem coming to welcome him. And um, that was in 1917. Now you go to Israel, and it's a luscious garden. Yeah, what tribe is he in? Where is that? Oh, there's a bunch of them. I'll make a dry line. You can just look it up in the courts. There's all kinds of prophecies about the land becoming rich. Jeremiah has it. Mark Twain was very outspoken. He just thought it was really a... Uh, I can't believe anybody want to live there. Well, you know why it was like that? Because the Turks had cut all the trees down. They just cut all the trees down and let them into a desert. The Ottomans or whoever, you know, the different people that ruled over Israel. Well, anyhow, so there's a prophecy that God will do two things to make Messiah a covenant for the peoples. That's the church. And restore Jacob, which is Israel. All right, I gotta remember that. Don't let anybody let me forget. <laughs> I did forty-nine eight. Keep that in there because that'd be interesting in the debate to use some Old Testament prophecy, not just you know Romans eleven where they expect you to go. Okay, uh, Bert, Isaiah fifty-three three and eleven. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not put him, uh, did not esteem him. And eleven is as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. But his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. You'll justify the many. Paul uses that term many in Romans 5 as the illusion that Isaiah 53 loved. Great, fantastic prophecies of Jesus' suffering in order to bring justification to the many. Don't you think you should include 12? Well, we're always open to another verse going What's verse 12? Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he hath numbered he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Now I've noticed it it says he was numbered with the transgressors. It didn't say he was one of them. So there's a prophecy of Christ's sinlessness. Um, you can preach the gospel out of the Old Testament easily. This preacher was going to Isaiah 49 or Isaiah 53. You had all the gospel right there. Go to Psalm 22. In fact, when you talk with Jewish people, that's a very good thing to do. Use their scriptures. That's what Paul did. Just use, use the Old Testament. It's all there. So, if you wanted to start somewhere with you know, familiarizing yourself with the gospel in the Old Testament, I would just go to Isaiah 53. It's the clearest expression of it. Okay, then, um, so Jesus offered up prayers of supplication to the one who was able to save him, and he was hurt because of his reverence. It says in verse 8, Although he was the son, he learned obedience, Hebrews 5, 8, from the things which he suffered. 
And this certainly is going to require a little bit of interpretation here because it immediately creates a question. Yes. Well, immediately it did. I've been thinking about this. <laughs> uh, and I know maybe it's just naivety on my part, but why did Christ have to suffer and then die? I mean, the old type of sacrifice in the Old Testament, you know, led to the new covenant through Christ. But the animals, maybe this isn't a good comparison, but the animals didn't suffer. As a matter of fact, they took pains not to have an animal suffer for sacrifice. But why did Jesus have to suffer? And then it says he learned obedience through his suffering. How could the Son of God be more obedient than the Son of God? (laughs) I like your inquisitive mind, Carolyn. Good questions. Very good. No, that's a good thing that you ask these questions. First of all, on the first part of that, the second part is what this verse is about, and we'll be exploring that here. Don't be dead. Okay, um, the first part. Why did Jesus, just in case somebody's listening on the internet, the question was, why did Jesus have to suffer? The animals did. You know, they, they were, took pains to not have to suffer, but he suffered. Good question. First of all, the animals only suffered death and brief physical pain, but the animals had no mental suffering at all, because they don't know what's going on. Jesus his whole life was filled with suffering. Because he he was, um, and we're going to be going to Philippians 2 as part of the answer here, he just just em- empty himself of his divine prerogative. He never loses his divine nature. Because deity can't be gained or lost, it just is. But, but emptying himself of his divine prerogatives and becoming, and humbling himself to be born and to go through pains of life okay, in itself is suffering for the divine son and then to be hated and rejected by his own people is creating mental suffering and anguish and the, the why of it is it has to do with the mental part of bearing all of this horror of grief of sin when his holiness cannot tolerate sin and his person, so he's bearing the sins of the people. And then the physical part of it is uh, uh, showing just the gravity of the human race's hatred of God. In other words, uh, it's not uh, just what he's going to learn, which we're going to talk about here, but the fact that they tortured him so badly that some people went and saw the movie. Passion, and I think that's certainly striking. The degree of torture is very, very striking. Striking, um, and and that shows how guilty and wicked the human race is. That they would delight to torture a person who, who is sinless. Yes. I was thinking this, Tony. You think it makes any sense? <clears throat> when the Jews sacrificed, it was usually a Jew or a family or a group that was sacrificing one animal. I mean, they would have thousands and thousands upon thousands of animals being sacrificed. I mean, they were knee-deep in blood at the altar. But now you have Jesus for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of it. And you know what else, I think? About why, and very good question, by the way, Carolyn. Also, there's something else going on there. 
He is vindicating all the righteous sufferers in history. From Job to David. So he's fulfilling this. Remember when David suffered? And he, and he lamented? Um, and he becomes the ultimate righteous sufferer. Which was part of... In fact, that's why I wrote an article about that called The Jewish Lament and the Problem of Evil. Okay? When the Jewish people uh, were... I mean, they suffered. They were God's chosen people. And they still suffer. And they were hated and persecuted throughout history for being called... What did the Jews do to deserve to be hated? Well, what they did was God called them. And they're hated because of that. Because Satan hates God's calling. And so, Jesus is fulfilling the lament of all of the righteous sufferers in history in the Old Testament. And he is taking that all upon himself. And so he's bearing our sufferings as well as our sins. So we have an example, as it says in Hebrews, of suffering servants, that when we suffer, well, Christ suffered, can we do When we suffer, yeah, when we suffer, we're walking in his footsteps, Peter said. He said, in fact, he suffered, leaving us an example that we should walk in his footsteps. Now, we can't suffer for somebody else's sin in any kind of atoning way. But if we put our faith in Christ by grace, we may very well suffer. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, it says. But now the second part of your question, alright, is how can Jesus be made learn obedience? Because he's God, he knows everything, so how can he what's he got to learn? Now that's a very good question. I remember the first time I read this in Hebrew science for a long time on that question. I don't know if I ever did think I got an answer. But I found what the commentary said really um, make a lot of sense. But um, I think the answer is found in, a, in the Bible verse. And where are we here? Uh, Barb, could you look up Philippians 2 8? I think that's probably our best answer. <coughs> Philippians 2 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Okay? And so this obedience is a reference to Christ's willingness to go to the cross. Remember in Gethsemane, in the same context here, he's talking about Gethsemane in verse 7. It is possible to take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine. And so Jesus became obedient. He learned obedience in his humanity. Now, Philippians 2 is talking about Christ's Willingness to take on humanity, the form of man, and become obedient. So what he learned was the human aspect of suffering. As God, that that was something that he now experienced as man. Plus, he's the example to us also. Yeah, yeah according to Philippians 2. Yes. Earlier in Hebrews, in verse, chapter 4, verse 15, this is, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with our feelings. He became man to identify with man. He became man to die for the sins of man. Man had sinned and man needed to shed blood to cover that sin. Well, we couldn't because we're sinful, but he could because he was without sin. And all of this that was poured on Jesus was an example to us, and he 
that he was our high priest, he was our Lord, he was our Savior. He took it all upon himself. Uh, by the way, that's also the point here in Hebrews 5, because verse 9 says, if he came to all those who obeyed him, it starts to kill salvation. So it's talking about his obedience, and then therefore calling us to obedience to the gospel. Exactly. Yes. Now I've got a quote here from Simon Kistemacher. It says this, Jesus did not have to learn anything concerning obedience, for his will was the same as God's will. However, in his humanity, Jesus had to show full obedience. He had to become obedient to death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2.8. As one version has it, quote, Son though he was, he learned obedience in the school of suffering. And it's interesting that in the Greek, the word has a definite article, and it says he learned the obedience. The obedience. Referring to something very specific. Not just any kind of obedience, but the obedience, which would be this death on the cross. Because that was what the issue was. When he was praying in his seventh. And so he did what the Father called him to do. And so, in a sense, it says he learned obedience. Um, also, we're going here. Um, it says here, although Jesus was the eternal Son of God, he entered into a new dimension in the experience of sonship by virtue of his incarnation and sacrificial death. Um, Oh, the word suffered there is pascane in the Greek, where we get our word passion. So, for instance, that movie was called The Passion of the Christ. And it might seem strange to us that the word passion, I mean, we're used to it that way, but it's not how normally how the term passion is used in English. You know, Jesus suffering on the cross, how is that passion? Because um, we think passion would be like zeal or strong feelings. But the Greek word for passion, pasking, um, here is used for his sufferings. Um, it says here, uh, for the crucial consideration is that in Hebrews, the verb pasking, which ordinarily means to suffer, is used only of the passion of Jesus and takes on the nuance to die. In view of the unique redemptive sufferings of the Son in the discharge of his priestly office, a suffering in an undeviated acceptance of the divine will as his own, Jesus honors God as sovereign and trusts himself to him, confident that he will give him his office and dignity. So here is the passion, the passion of the Christ as he learns obedience. Okay, now Tim, could you look up Isaiah 50, 5 and 6? 50? Yeah, and um, Peter, John 6, 38. <clears throat> Do you think one reason we suffer is that to learn obedience? Yeah, exactly. We do learn obedience through suffering. Very much so. And also share that experience with others going through life times. Exactly. So we also can empathize with others. And it's very much true. I, I Honestly, I used to wonder about that when I was a younger person because Frankly, up until I was in my 40s, I hardly anything ever went wrong in my life. I never got sick. I had very few weaknesses. And 
I, I had a real strong will. I just decided something to do it. And my wife always accused me of uh, not having a very realistic understanding of what people don't do. And um, not being very empathetic. Well, that all changed. <laughs> that all changed when I, when all of a sudden the rug got pulled out from under me and I went through, still going through, you know, 12 years of lots of sorrows and sufferings. Uh, God uses whatever we go through. I would, you know, it was nice being that other way, like this just you know, clicking along, but I wouldn't be able to be a pastor the way, I don't know how I'm a good pastor or not, but I'd be a lot worse one if I hadn't gone through the suffering. Let's put it that way. Well, the Bible says give glory to God in the last suffering. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Tim, Isaiah 55 and 6. The Lord God has opened my ears, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked up the ear. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Yeah, and that is a messianic prophecy. Because that's what happened to Jesus. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Yeah, Jesus said, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And then he said, not that my, I'm my will, but thine. So the learning obedience was the son perfectly obeying the father in the act of suffering for the sins of the people. The sins, um, the righteous one was numbered with the transgressors, as it says in Isaiah 53. And he died as a criminal, though he was sinless. And though he was um, the eternal son, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly honored him, giving him a name above every other name. Quoting from Philippians 2. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if this is true in all cases, but I'll speak from my experience, which probably isn't a good thing to do. But when I have gone through trials and tribulations and suffering, this, this last surgery that we've I've never felt closer to the Lord. And I think through our sufferings, we are drawn to Him. And He, he just, He's just so close to us. Sure, other people have had this uh, happen to them also. Because when there's nowhere else to turn, when you have no other choice, God is right there. I think for the believer, when we suffer, it does, God uses it redemptively because He allows it. And He uses it redemptively to bring us closer to Him. If we don't know God and we suffer, we tend to just get bitter or, you know, there's no. Redemption is suffering unless you know the Lord. It just is a bitterness of life. But there's a unique thing about Christians as far as our relationship to, to what sufferings are all about and what they mean. And that's why it's such a disservice for the people to suggest that if you suffer, you're a worse Christian. You just don't have enough faith. It's just cruel because it's pulling a rug out from under people. That should be being encouraged and given hope. Bad theology. There's a lot of bad theology out there. Well, people that are already sick and they say they're not healed because uh, I don't. You're already suffering, so Job's comforters back 
I wrote an article on that called Don't Come or Revisit It. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering like five Thank you. 